Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today, we welcome Tanya Guerrero, an immigration attorney with the Estamos Unidos Asylum Project with the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, also known as Clinic. Thank you for being with us, Tanya. Will you tell us a bit about your immigration experience before we begin? Hi. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. My immigration experience started in Mexico, in the state of Nuevo León. I practiced there, and I would go to detention centers um, where Central American, Brazilian, and a handful of Middle Easterners were being held due to their lack of immigration status. And I then went ahead and got barred in D.C. and started practicing litigation, the immigration litigation in D.C. And so after a while of that, I moved on to clinic and I have been with Catholic Legal Immigration Network for almost two years. Great. Thank you. In episode four, we talked with clinic executive Luis Guerrero about some of the basics surrounding the border. We talked about things like what is a port of entry and some of the potential outcomes individuals and families can face when they come to the border. And today, I'd like to dive in and talk about one of those outcomes, the migrant protection protocols. So first of all, is the migrant protection protocols the same thing as remain in Mexico? I feel like that's what we hear generally on the news, remain in Mexico program. Are they the same thing? Yes. Migrant Protection Protocols is the official name of the program, and Remain in Mexico is how it's colloquially known. Could you give us a basic definition of the Migrant Protection Protocols? And just for our listeners, I think throughout this episode, we'll probably refer to it as MPP, which just stands for Migrant Protection Protocols. But can you give us a basic definition of what it is? Yes. It's a program that started in January of 2019. And what it basically does is have asylum seekers or migrants who entered the United States remain in Mexico while their proceedings, while their hearing or their case is pending before U.S. Immigration Court. What was the reason given for starting this program? Did it have to do with court backlog or other border issues? There were many reasons that were floated. Um, I remember that some of those reasons were that they wanted to dedicate more resources to those who were actually seeking protection under this legitimate asylum claim. Well, quote unquote legitimate because only a judge could really define that. There was also this narrative of increasing or improving border security. There were also many reasons when it came to people not showing up to their court hearings. And so they wanted to, they meaning the government wanted to make sure that while the case is pending, that people stay on the Mexican side of the border to assure that they will continue to present themselves at their court hearings. So one thing that we learned in a previous episode was that asylum seekers have to physically be in the U.S. in order to ask for asylum. Yes. And so are asylum seekers who 
end up as part of this MPP program, they're allowed to make that claim even though they're not in the U.S.? So there's a technicality. When, once you cross the border through a port of entry or if you cross irregularly um, and you're detained by U.S. immigration authorities, you have entered the United States and U.S. authorities will provide a document that states that they enter at such date, such times in a certain place and that they are charged with violating a certain law if they entered irregularly or without any documentation. And then they have the right or obligation uh, to see a judge. And that's when the removal proceedings start. So that document is a charging document and it's called notice to appear. Um, We know it as NTA. So once you have that document, you have entered the United States and there's a case pending. I see. And so anyone who is a part of this MPP program, they would have entered, received this notice, which is basically like a first step of a potential deportation and then are sent back into Mexico, even though they're not technically deported through a trial or anything yet. Right. They're not deported. They're not removed. They are returned to Mexico and awaiting their case. Okay. What is Mexico's role in this program? The Mexican government, as of today, has provided some sort of humanitarian, let's say, visa or a permit of sorts to stay in, in, in Mexico while their case is pending in the United States. They've also provided in some ports of entry, um, I know here in Ciudad Juarez, there is a federal shelter where people under MPP are allowed to stay and have basic needs somewhat covered. They've also, Mexican government has also allowed for those under MPP to work, which is not always easy for an asylum seeker or a migrant to access that due to employers not understanding migrants' rights. But it is something that the federal government is is doing. So they provide some of those humanitarian shelters. They allow those asylum seekers to be there with permission, even though it's a U.S. program, they're allowing them to be in Mexico temporarily. Yes. And then they're allowing them to work if they can, if they can find work. If they manage to figure that out. Yes. Okay. The shelter that's here in Ciudad Juarez is called Centro Integrador para el Migrante Leona Vicario. And, and that kind of support isn't available throughout the border. So it's just random almost or, or in bigger cities? I really don't know the criteria that the Mexican government has implemented in in deciding where these shelters are. But notably, it's not the U.S. providing those shelters? No. Okay. Do we know how many people have been returned to Mexico as part of the program, or who is subject to this program? There is a rough estimate of, um, and I know that this has been documented throughout media and since 2019 to now, but there's over 60,000 people that have been placed under this program. And who is subject to MPP? Well, um, when it started, it was specifically to Central Americans, and that has been broadened uh, as time has passed. Brazilians have been placed under MPP. We we have had a few Mexican nationals being placed under MPP, which uh, should not occur There's been 
unaccompanied minors that have been placed under MPP when they were or they sh should be considered an exception. Um, there's a few vulnerable populations that were also considered exceptions and that have been placed under MPP. And so you've kind of mentioned there are some people who this program should not affect, like unaccompanied minors. Yes. Who else should be given special consideration and should not be part of this program, even if we have been finding that they might be anyway? Certain populations that are in extreme vulnerability, LGBTQ people, unaccompanied minors, as I mentioned before, Mexican nationals, people with certain disabilities have also been considered exceptions and in occasions have also been placed under MPP regardless. Um, people that ha do not speak Spanish were not supposed to be under MPP and many are. And I'm not only talking about major or mainstream languages, but also indigenous languages. And because they're in a country where the majority speaks Spanish and they are placed in that vulnerable situation because they can't really communicate with their surroundings and and um, and again, they're placed under MPP. Who has the authority to decide who is allowed into the U.S. and who becomes part of this program? It sounds like there exist some protocol, but they aren't necessarily followed. So who is making those decisions? Department of Homeland Security is the agency in the United States that makes these decisions. Um, but there's agencies within that major umbrella, CBP and Border Patrol are, are major actors in, in, in those decisions. On a logistical level, can you talk us through when someone or a family arrives at the border or point of entry, they seek asylum, how exactly do they end up as part of this program? So you kind of mentioned they get this notice, but could you, on a really basic level, yeah. walk us through what it's like and maybe even some of the timeframes that are, that are involved with that? Yes, things have changed a little bit um, since COVID, but pre-COVID, we learned that people could present themselves at the port of entry um, or attempt to enter the United States irregularly in between ports of entry. And they, the asylum seeker, expresses their need for protection or that they're in imminent danger in however form they can do that before a U.S. immigration officer. And this immigration officer will detain them. And this is regardless if they have children or not. They will be detained, and, and sometimes they're detained for 24 hours. Sometimes they're detained for three days. Sometimes they're detained for a week. It all depends. And what does that depend on? It could be that there are just a lot of people that they have to process, or just because um, there's not a lot of opportunity to return them, you know, just logistically, the U.S. immigration officers will do what they need to do to detain them. Sometimes if they cross and there's um, an injury, then the, the return might not be as immediate. So it all depends. There's 5,000 factors that are taken into consideration and and the officers will interview the the person, maybe not the minor. And they'll ask for just basic information, full names, relationship, if they're a biological child or not, ages, birth dates, nationality. And they'll generate some sort 
of documentation with all this. And the notice to appear is one of those documents. And sometimes, not always, the officers will interview them to determine if this person should be returned to Mexico, meaning if this person fears returning to Mexico or not. And so this fear screening sometimes will determine if this person should not be put under MPP because they fear persecution or they're unsafe in Mexico. If the officer determines that this person is quote unquote safe in Mexico, then they are returned to Mexico at whatever point of entry closest to them. Could you clarify when someone is detained, that means held in a detention center? Yes. CBP and Border Patrol have spaces, they have detention facilities where people are kept. And many people describe them as yeleras in Spanish. In English, a lot of people um, translate it into ice boxes. A lot of people that I have consulted that have talked to me formally and informally have expressed that these places are usually extremely, extremely cold, and that's why they call them yeleras, and that they might be extremely cramped, or there's no private restroom, or that the lights will never be turned off. So it is a traumatic experience to be in that place. You had mentioned earlier that families or individuals from Mexico should not be a part of this program. What happens to those people who are seeking asylum from Mexico? Why, why are they not part of this program? I would think it would be easiest for them to remain in Mexico. Can you give us a reason why or what, what they do differently or would they be allowed into the U.S.? Pre-COVID, many people from Mexico, Mexican nationals who sought asylum in the United States have been put under MPP, and I believe it to be erroneous, because they are in the country that they're fleeing persecution. So they are still in the place that they fear to be in danger. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, during COVID, we can say that Mexican nationals, as well as many other nationalities, are being expelled from the United States, meaning that because of COVID, uh, Title 42 has been implemented. And so the U.S. government will no longer allow Mexican nationals or anyone else, for that matter, to seek asylum. They are just, just as I mentioned, expelled from the United States without that charging document, without that notice to appear before a judge. So what that causes is that many people attempt to seek protection and are in imminent danger and have no way to express that before an officer, before being expelled or seek a place of safety because they're, they're in the place that they're fleeing from. And so Title 42 is essentially, we're not accepting claims to asylum. Title 42 is essentially closing the border, the U.S. border, to the rest of the world that is seeking asylum and does not have any possibility of obtaining a visa. So can you talk a little bit more when people are, or when they were, returned to Mexico, you said there are some some shelters that are provided. Where, where do people go, and especially a family? Where would a family with children go to wait safely? 
That's a really difficult question because where does a family go to wait safely? Safely is like the key word there. It's really difficult to find safety across the border. So many cities across the Mexican border, northern border, are very dangerous, are extremely dangerous, and they're infested with cartel violence. And as a migrant, you're you're a target, you're a clear target, especially when you're traveling with small children. Many ports or many um, border cities do not have the infrastructure. And so shelters might not be available. There are more people than capacity. And so here in Ciudad Juarez, a lot of churches and faith-based groups have opened their doors to help and in this in this humanitarian crisis, but they're not shelters per se. They're humanitarian spaces that some can be safe at times, but there's they're not adequate for staying there long periods of time. So you have overcrowdedness, you have a lack of basic needs. And now with COVID, social distancing and, and hygiene and, and all this is, is practically impossible. There's, there's more people than shelters. So many people find themselves in abandoned buildings and um, squatting in, you know, in, in these abandoned buildings, or they find a place to, to rent. And there's many of them in these overcrowded little rooms, or they trust strangers and their good intentions, and that might put them into trouble. But the need is great. And so you do what you can with the resources that are available to you, but that might not be equal safety. So the middle piece of this, protections, what what protections are afforded those who are sent back to Mexico? Or like from your experience, what is it like for people who end up as part of this program? I, I can't even imagine as a mother of three what it would be like to, well, A, like need to flee my home because I felt so in danger, but then to be returned to a place where I, I didn't know where to go. Could you just speak a little bit to maybe some of the families or individuals that you've worked with, what that's, what that's like? Sure. I, I really, you ask what that middle word in that, in the name of the program represents to me. And, and, and it really leaves people without protection at all. The, the need, as I said, pre-COVID was extreme. And now during COVID, uh, people are in dire situations. I have been here in Ciudad Juarez for over a year and I have consulted and, and uh, met a lot of families, a lot of people. And people have been here close to a year or now hitting that year mark. And that light at the end of the tunnel is, is getting dimmer and dimmer. Um, I've always said that MPP is this disease that kills you from the inside out because uh, it just wears you down. The weight is, is just really exhausting. It depletes one person. It depletes a family. I've met people that have come from many parts of the world and they all have their story and their reasons for being here. And when they, when you ask them 
about their stay in Mexico, some are conflicted because they have met people in Mexico that have helped them, but they have also experienced kidnapping and rape, and they have experienced assaults, and they have experienced discrimination. And so I am Mexican. And so when they when they express this to me, they feel like, you know, I don't want to offend you. And it's like, no, no, no. I know my country and 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 I know that that we are not a safe place. And these circumstances leave people in situations that are unimaginable. There are a lot of cases of children where they have regressed their developmental um, progress has basically stayed still or paused, I guess, a child that had learned how to walk is now not walking or someone, you know, a baby that was being social and was playing is, is no longer as social as before. Depression hits and um, uncertainty is overwhelming. And the levels of danger and violence that asylum seekers and migrant face at the northern border of Mexico and the southern of the United States, southern border of the United States is tremendous. You refer to the wait time as being up to a year or close. Is that an average wait time or how long do people and families generally have to wait before their case could be heard? Well, we also have to take into consideration that COVID closed or suspended hearings for those under MPP. Cases have been paused since March. So people that had a final hearing scheduled after maybe two or three hearings and have been here since maybe July of last year or April of last year, they had a hearing coming and they were, you know, finally getting to that final decision. A judge was going to hear a case. They were going to have their day in court. And that was suspended. That was paused and it didn't move forward. We are on October now and we have no idea when court, when hearings will be rescheduled and reopened. And so the, the wait continues. There's many people that had final hearings for September, for December of this year, and are now rescheduled for March and April of next year. It's very uncertain to know if that's going to actually happen or not, because hearings have not moved forward. So an average is really difficult to, to really even imagine as long as courts do not reopen. Do people have any access to counsel when they're in Mexico? In our episode on asylum, we learned that having legal counsel can make a, a huge difference. Is there any opportunity for that? Or how does, what does that look like? Counsel is extremely important to, to, to just navigate the whole immigration, the U.S. immigration system, but also to present a strong case for yourself. A lot of, maybe the majority of the people that are seeking asylum have never been before a judge before. Maybe they've never left their town before. They don't know English. Maybe some don't know how to write or read. So all of these are, are just, they're add-ons to, to the obstacles that they face because they are in a foreign country. And navigating a system that you are not familiar with is, is, is very difficult when you know how to read and write. Imagine in a different language, in a different country. 
So you don't really understand what's ex expected of you. And when we think of these people having access to counsel, um, we also think that they're in a different country where their hearings are being held, in a country where the, the immigration system is completely different, where their, their lawyers are not trained in U.S. immigration law, where the language is different in Mexico. So it, there's just a list that you consider when thinking of obtaining legal representation. And so I have to say that it is very, very, very difficult, and I would say impossible, to obtain representation from Mexico to be represented in the United States. Some people are able to obtain representation through organizations. Some people have family members that are able to help them. Some people are savvy enough to read in English and are able to look online and Google will help them. Um, but that's one of the main reasons of why Estamos Unidos opened operations here in Ciudad Juarez is, is that we provide pro se legal assistance to asylum seekers and migrants so they at least know what part of the process they're in, what the process looks like. What is expected of them? What is asylum? What are the requirements? These are a lot of things that are really difficult to understand on a normal day for an attorney or for a law student in, in the climate that we live in where change is frequent and very sudden. Keeping up is even more difficult. Before we close up this episode, can you talk about what is the legality of this type of program? I believe that migrant protection protocols is completely illegal. But when you ask someone else, maybe someone in government, they might say that it is legal. And, and this discrepancy is challenged in court as we speak. Courts have not decided if this program is actually legal or not. And there are over 10 cases that are being litigated now regarding MPP and various aspects of MPP. What I can say is that I believe it to be illegal because it does conflict with U.S. domestic law as well as international law, uh, which prohibits the return of people to countries where they face persecution. Thank you so much, Tanya, for spending this time with us, for educating us and explaining more about this program that affects so many individuals and families just south of our border. Where can people learn more about you and or Estamos Unidos Asylum Project? Thank you, Katarina. The reality is that being able to talk about MPP is just a great opportunity because many people don't know what's going on here at the border. And so you giving us this opportunity is, is a treat. Thank you very much. When it comes to doing more or learning more, you can always go into our clinic website, cliniclegal.org slash Estamos Unidos, and you could find um, blog pieces about MPP here in Ciudad Juarez. You could volunteer, you can donate, you can just navigate and, and explore the website and learn a little more about what asylum is and how we're trying to defend asylum law in the United States. Thank you again, Tanya. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. 
If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.